welcome back to Peace in Their Time, episode 13, Payback, Please. With France having scored its revenge against Germany, let's take a look at French political life as it begins to restart in late 1919. Just as in the modern day, there are a plethora of different political parties on the scene, and I kind of blanch at describing them all in detail. Which, if you picked up on how much I love describing political history, you know that is really saying something. On the left, you have an assortment of socialist-style workers' parties, and very soon the communists will become a larger player on this scene. Center-left is mostly dominated by the radicals, which, don't let the name fool you, they are just center-left liberals here. They want reforms in favor of the common man, but not the complete dissolution of classes or the market economy. The center-right are composed of various moderate parties. To make an analogy to American politics, they're kind of like third-way Democrats. Socially and politically to the left, kind of, sort of, but also believers in the free market and private enterprise. They prefer to hang with the radicals while in power, but campaign with the conservatives during elections. The conservative parties are your standard to-hell-with-the-plebs types, who prefer strong governments only when private businesses need propping up and when the military needs funding. They are great, but the plus side the big win after the war basically legitimized the republic for a while longer, so you won't be hearing about old-fashioned monarchist and bonapartism politicians. So the conservatives are pretty much as far right as you're going to get for a little while. Those aforementioned uh, old-school parties would eventually re-emerge as the divisions in the republic started to paralyze the system, but they'll be a lot less serious than their older incarnations and will be more a symptom of their times rather than a viable movement. November 1919 was the time for national elections, a first since before the war, and for the occasion, the moderates threw in with the conservatives to form the National Bloc. They promised an orderly transition to peacetime, which might not sound like a lot, but was exactly what people were looking for. The left, on the other hand, was naturally fragmented and lacking in leadership. The socialists were actively trying to establish links with Moscow, while the radicals were not ready yet to take that kind of step. So, each component of the left opted to go it alone in the face of the National Bloc. Like in America at the time, the conservatives indulged in a whole lot of Red Scare tactics, playing up the Bolsheviks coming to eat their families. The result was a broad national bloc victory, with the alliance taking two-thirds of the seats in Parliament. The silver lining for the left was that this was a distinctly national bloc victory, not a conservative one. The moderates of the national bloc weren't about to start implementing conservative policies, as those were unpopular as all hell with the masses. And indeed, the faction swung more towards friendship with the radicals uh, once it actually got into office. The far left had actually gotten more overall voters than they had in the past, and with a little less internal chaos, could maybe, possibly, look forward to a comeback. Clebusseau at this time was still the face of the National Bloc, but looked forward to the end of his time as Prime Minister and towards the January 1920 presidential elections. He figured, given his war record, it'd be a slam dunk and a Nice way to ride off into the political sunset. Well, remember when I talked about reactions within France to the peace deals during the Versailles episodes? Yeah, many of the conservatives thought he didn't go far enough. And remember how I mentioned earlier in the introduction episode last week that he cracked down on a lot of politicians who had been calling for peace? Well, suffice to say, Clemenceau made a lot of enemies. And the presidency was actually decided by a parliamentary vote at the time. Parliament decided to move on from the old tiger. No longer Prime Minister, defeated as a presidential candidate, Clement So slunk off the political stage. But hey, out with the old and in with the new. Placeholder. 
Prime Minister, Alexander Millerand. Millerand is another person who isn't hugely important to our story, but serves as a handy example of a larger problem that France is going to run into when it comes to leadership. Namely, the problem that French politicians move around on the spectrum. He started out as a, commit, as a committed socialist, calling for workers' unions and seizing the means of production. But over the decades, he mellowed out and limited himself to more manageable goals, like workday hour limitations and minimum wages and the like. He apparently was satisfied by these kinds of measures that were eventually adopted, and dropped out of the left and into the center by this time. So we are going to be meeting a lot of leaders who uh, get around, if you know what I mean. Millerand served as prime minister until later in 1920, when the guy who was selected to beat Clemenceau actually had, was forced to resign. And Millerand was accepted as a compromise candidate between the right and the left. This opened the door to one of the most important French politicians of the 20s, albeit not as a prime minister, Aristide Briand. He was a born diplomat and a shameless political chameleon. He had been an anarchist, a socialist, and eventually turned into a more uh, centrist guy who had no qualms about serving in more conservative administrations. Nobody was sure what he actually believed in, but he nevertheless had friends everywhere. Starting in January 1921, he would be prime minister for the third time already. He would spend this time in office attempting what he always was naturally inclined to do cut deals and compromises that try and achieve some political consensus in both France and Europe. This initial effort in the post-war period didn't really go well for him, however. The nationalists in Parliament were still a powerful and assertive faction. They wanted France to flex even more on the Germans than they already had. France was already occupying the Saarland on the border with Germany, and Briand didn't want to isolate himself internationally by seeming the aggressor and making new demands. He secured assurances from all the allies in the Entente that Germany would still pay in full their war reparations, which, given the economic collapse of that nation in the immediate post-war years, was proving to be kind of a concern. If Germany had no money, then it would be hard to actually pay anything back. As mandated by the Versailles Treaty in March 1921, there can be a conference to settle the matters of reparations, as that issue had been delayed a couple years to let everybody cool down and get a better picture of what amount was justifiable. The Germans, being flat broke and dealing with a still unstable government, opened with an offer of 30 billion gold marks. I say gold marks because those are marks, the German currency, that are backed by gold, which helpfully meant that their value would remain constant even when Germany's unbacked paper marks suffered from inflation. It also meant Germany would have a lot more trouble scrounging them up as its economic crisis worsened. When Briand had been feeling out Allied support back in January 1921, the Entente had set the payment at $226 billion. You can imagine the look on the Allied faces when the $30 billion figure was floated. If you can't, take into consideration that the French-British response was both of those countries sending troops into the Rhineland, going so far as occupying Dusseldorf and other crossings on the Rhine River. The Germans at this point were forced to take the hint, and in true German fashion of not learning a thing, raised their offer to 50 billion. The French and British barely dignified this offer with a response and sent a final ultimatum in May. The Allied demand at this point was dropped down to 132 billion gold marks. The Germans were in a tough spot, what with foreign troops on their soil and the prospect of uncertain finances for decades, but they relented. Success, right? Well, again, remember what happened with Clemenceau and the Treaty of Versailles. 
The financial arrangement didn't stick it to the Germans nearly enough. It should have been the $226 billion. Plus, they had to share with other affected nations, namely Belgium. Briand also suffered two more diplomatic setbacks in 1921 as well. The first was in trying to secure British support on another project, namely securing the Central European states wedged between Germany and the nascent Soviet Union. France desperately wanted some additional maneuvering room, but lacked the financial capability to prop them up. More on that later. The British basically responded with a dismissive chuckle and a snide comment about not wanting to get entangled with peoples they had no prior relationships with. So that didn't go well. French did send military missions and aid to Poland during its war with Bolshevik Russia, which helped organize the nascent Polish army into a more effective fighting force. It, to a degree, it helped. Thereafter, uh, Polish-French relations were friendly, but Poland was correctly suspicious that France intended to use them as an anvil against the Germans, and refused to make a full military commitment. The French also supported the Little Entente effort with Czechoslovakia, Romania, and Yugoslavia, joining them together in a loose alliance to maintain each nation's newly won gains from Hungarian and German revanchism. These states also preferred not to be too tied down to French leadership, as they also detected that they were seen as junior partners in Paris, who were to be used as pawns to maintain French power. So just a couple years into the post-war era, and already hopes of French leadership were being diminished. Then there was the Washington Naval Conference, which, while a much bigger deal for some of our other nations, I'll mention here for the French perspective. This conference was an effort among the five major naval powers to restrict uh, navy sizes amongst each other. The U.S. and U.K. each got the maximum amount of shipbuilding capability a nation could have. Japan got three-fifths of that. France and Italy got around a third of the maximum amount. Being lumped in with Italy was not a good look domestically, and almost more embarrassingly, this was brushed off by the British, assuring the French that they would look out for their interests on the seas. Almost a century removed from the treaty, and you can still feel the patronizing tone. So, this year was mixed at best for Briand, and he'll be out as Prime Minister by January 1922. The final straw was at the end of 1921, agreeing with the British to ease the Germans' reparations for, in exchange for a collective security agreement with the British. Parliament and the public really didn't like that idea, and this was one of the times that Briand's smooth operating capabilities couldn't save him, and he was replaced. Don't worry, he'll be back to do his diplomat thing as foreign minister, and it'll be a much greater success when he resurfaces. In the meantime, he'll be replaced with the much more bellicose Raymond Poincaré. His term will also be dominated by the question of reparations owed by Germany. Now, why is France so desperate to shake down the Germans? Is it vengefulness? Oh, very, yes, yes, yes it is, and so much more. The French single-mindedness on reparations stemmed from a very real and growing concern as the heady days of 1919 victory gradually became more distant. And that concern centered on the French economy. The process of rehabilitating the Northeast after the German occupation was going to be an ongoing effort over many years. And even more so, it was going to be colossally expensive. It helped that Alsace-Lorraine was relatively untouched by the war and integrated fairly painlessly back into France. But it was going to take an injection of cold, hard currency in order to get the nation back into working order. To accomplish this, they created the National Credit a bank-operated but publicly managed company that started issuing bonds to the public specifically to fund the reconstruction of formerly occupied France. This was actually a successful bond program for helping repair the war damage, 
with the money raised eventually fixing up about 70% of the damaged areas. Make no mistake, though, these were bonds and not donations. They were going to need to be paid back with the advertised yields when they came due. The problem in all this is that money was becoming increasingly tight. Much like Italy, France was reluctant during the war to raise taxes in order to fund the fighting. Instead, they opted to bankroll their efforts by taking out huge numbers of loans from both New York and London banks. And while the bankers in both the U.S. and U.K. were happy to prop France up during wartime, as long as they were fighting the Germans, peacetime saw the moneylenders adopt a stricter posture when it came to terms. This manifested as early as January 1921, when the first loan taken from J.P. Morgan back in 1915 came due. France didn't have the spare funds on hand with which to pay back its share of the loan. So, they had to go elsewhere on Wall Street, publicly, mind you, and secure more loans with embarrassingly high rates of interest. So here you have one of the world's great powers, supposedly the leading one of Europe, with a hundred million captive souls in a gargantuan overseas empire, with one of the strongest militaries in the world despite a million and a half war dead, going hat in hand through the streets of New York trying to secure a debt, any debt, in order to pay back the old one that they couldn't pay back already. And even then, it took weeks to get the funding secured, and there was a very real possibility in January 1921 that France would have to declare bankruptcy. This was obviously a problem. It was also a problem that was going to be intractable moving forward. The original loan in 1915 was just the start. It still owed a further $3 billion to the U.S. and $2 billion to the U.K. The British pressed the U.S. to accept forgiveness of all war debts between the wartime allies so as to remove the burden that both they and the French were operating under. Of course, the Americans tersely refused to even conceive of this. After all, there wouldn't be any immediate profit in debt forgiveness, and the two European empires had served their purpose in bringing down the Germans. The eternal quest to secure more and more funding, even if it entailed crippling interest rates, meant that going into the mid-20s, France would actually have to take out more in loans in peacetime than it actually had during wartime. This was a pressing issue that kept French leaders up at night. They needed that money from Germany. Not to mention the coal, too. Again, when the Germans were retreating, they demolished the coal mines on their way out. Now, just to keep the nation going, France would have to import coal. And for that, too, they looked hungrily at the Germans. The Germans couldn't pay reparations in cash. Well, they at least claimed to not be able to. But they couldn't very well claim to not be able to spare a bit of coal, now would they? The French were looking at a 50 million ton shortfall on it which admittedly was quite a bit more than some spare coal. The Saar land was ripe for exploitation, and provided 8 million tons of that sweet, sweet compressed carbon in 1920. The French, though, demanded an additional 27 million from the rest of Germany, of which about half that was eventually shipped west. This resource was vital not just to keep industry going, but really just to heat people's homes during winter time, and for a cash-trapped nation that otherwise could, probably couldn't scrounge up the money itself, it was vital. These problems of public financing, uh, the resistance of the Germans to meet their reparations responsibilities, and the resource shortfalls all added to a general sense of anxiety in the country, and it shook the confidence of a public desperate to return to uh, pre-war stability. This wasn't helped by post-war inflation either. This is a running theme of international finance in the aftermath of World War I, with every nation awash in debt and money just sloshing around most major economies. 
the majority of currencies just didn't have as much value as they did before. And when I say as much, I mean these currencies were in a freefall. And France's currency, the franc, was no exception. By 1920, it was running at 50% its pre-war value and kept trending downwards. This shouldn't be too surprising. The war had been funded by loans, and there was no plan of paying them back except through the previously described shell game of more loans. One sort of, I guess, upshot of this inflation was that it became very easy to pay back all the government bonds sold during the war. The downside, of course, is that the common Frenchman who had purchased those bonds took a bath and lost four-fifths of the value what they had originally invested. The only consolation is that most saw it more as a donation to the nation emerging victorious in the war. The alternative of sinking so much money into bonds and then losing the war without a means to recoup was exactly the scenario Germany was going through simultaneously. Which, for all France, was going through at this moment. The Germans had it so much worse. The new government under Poincaré would spend most of 1922 trying to find a way out of the straitjacket. He couldn't follow through with Briand's scheme with the British to lower the German war debt in exchange for collective security, which meant that the two allies, who had lost so much side-by-side side side just a few years ago, were at an impasse with each other. Britain desperately wanted to bring Germany back into the world of normal economic relations, which meant lowering the war debts. France needed Britain as an active ally, but couldn't budge on Germany. This went on for a solid year, all the while Germany was quasi-openly flouting its obligations. To make matters worse, the more the French protested the Germans' unwillingness to meet their obligations, the more the UK and US thought the French were being unreasonable. Everything was getting worse, and with no headway being made to reach a final accommodation with the British, Poincaré decided on a more assertive course of action. The opportunity presented itself in December 1922, when Germany defaulted on delivery of timber, which, along with coal, was a product being used to pay their debts in kind rather than with cash. This, combined with all the other defaults since the reparations meeting in 1921 set the terms, gave the French every legal pretext to force the issue by, well, by force. In January 1923, French and Belgian armies crossed the Rhine and occupied the Ruhr Valley. Yeah, the Belgians were tagging along on this one too. They had suffered even more catastrophically from the war and wanted reparations just as badly as the French did. Now, you'll be hearing a lot about the Ruhr Valley a small but vital region on the eastern bank of the Rhine River. It contained massive coal deposits and was the center of much of the Germans' industry. Their economy simply couldn't function without the region, and it collapsed in short order once the French occupied the area. This obviously created a touchy situation. The Germans were in open defiance of the Versailles Treaty, which specified that it was going to owe damages for the occupied territories. If somebody didn't enforce it, especially at this early stage, and the entire piece it created would be revealed to be hollow and ripe for revisioning. Now, though, there were boots on the ground and pride on the line, so it was going to be even harder to find a lasting solution. The actual invasion started on January 11th and didn't face any open resistance. The idea of the invasion was that the French authorities would establish themselves as local administrators, and any economic activity would be diverted to the benefit of France in order to service the war debts. The new regime was not intended to be draconian, whatever could be spared was supposed to be shipped westwards to the benefit of France. Now, I say supposed to, because as you might imagine with something like this, not everything went according to plan. The Germans decided not to play along with the French and cave in, and instead they simply let the French have the Ruhr and the Rhineland. The local Germans 
simply refused to cooperate with the occupying armies at the direction of their own national government. Industrial and mineral production in the area didn't collapse entirely, and indeed the French did secure some profit from the occupation even with the military costs included, but it was not the panacea Poincaré was looking for. The German government spitefully shrugged and accepted the economic collapse that followed the Ruhr being detached from the greater national economy. I'll be sure and cover it in the Germany episodes, but this was a time of spiraling unemployment and hyperinflation, which led to civil unrest, riots, and even a little beer hall shindig you might have heard about already. Now, this might seem like kind of a colossal self-own on the Germans' part, and overall it really was, but it did cause world opinion to swing their way really hard. France found itself terribly isolated at a really dicey time for their country. Public opinion, too, wasn't entirely sold on it either domestically. The left side of Parliament naturally went bananas in opposition to the move, and most leaders questioned the wisdom in isolating the country. Poincaré was partially bailed out in September 1923, when the German government agreed to resume payments, but the occupation would linger on into 1924. There would also, in October 1923, be a separatist movement to establish an independent Rhineland, but this particular movement never had broad support among the population. It was propped up by the French occupiers as a tool to get some collaborators organized and running things for them, but otherwise was not terribly serious. One thing to note, though, it obviously didn't go over well in the rest of Germany, as they saw it as a naked attempt to split their nation apart. This little incident is fun because it accomplishes two things that will be felt down the line. The first is that it inflames German nationalism to high heaven and causes cataclysmic economic shocks there which is going to be a very big deal in the German series. But for now, just know that in the context of France, this kind of treatment is going to be remembered. The second thing is that it demonstrated the limits of what French power could do when handling another major country like Germany. Jolly enough, wasn't really an indicator on actual French weakness. It was actually an indicator on how the French perceived themselves as weak. The occupation itself didn't face armed resistance. It forced the Germans to heal in the end. And it didn't actually uh, change France's economic situation for the worse. It was actually kind of a, of a success once you look past the bad press. But the French were shaken by the response, and were still too scarred by the war to support going on solo adventures eastward. There would be no more interventions in Europe, and moving forward, Paris would make acting in concert with London a precondition to any future action, which is vitally important because as the years pass and the world starts to unravel, there are numerous instances where the French nation intervening alone could have made all the difference. Even with all the dead and debts, France could push anybody in Europe around if they could get their hands on them. The fact that Paris could no longer bring itself to do so is going to be the cause of a lot of grief moving forward. Poincaré himself suffered as a result of the whole affair. The elections of 1924 were kind of a repeat of the 1919 ones, save for the simple fact that the left assembled itself into an organized bloc this time. The national bloc of moderates and conservatives still managed to get a bare 51% of seats. But remember, the moderates are a bunch of shifty characters who campaign right and then play the center while in power. Poincaré was ousted, and the center-left radicals led a new government with Edouard Herriot as prime minister. Reconciliation was still far away, but under the new left-leaning government, there was now a will to actually try and carry it out. That, though, will be something else to get to next week. See you then. And as always, thank you very much for listening.